This is the Orange Podcast. Conversations with Orange City Council for the local community. Hi everyone, Ellie Bryce here. Thanks for tuning in to the latest episode of the Orange Podcast. This week's council's plans to build mountain bike trails were in the spotlight when a community of around 160 people came to hear the latest. So here's a quick question to begin. You've heard of the world-famous Whistler ski fields in Canada, right? Which sport do you think makes the most for the Whistler economy? Snow skiing or mountain biking? So Whistler's a mecca for skiing and snowboarding. It's a major ski destination and um, people travel there year-round to ski. So their ski season is actually the majority of the year, given their climate. And mountain biking is only three months of the year. But in terms of the economic impact, their figures in terms of the economy is that mountain biking brings in more money in those three months in summer than um, it does in winter. More from bike track builder Jason Lamb later in the show. Whether or not Orange should build a bike track on the mountain is shaping up as one of many, many key debates in this year's local council elections, which are set for September. It's just over six months to go before the poll, and already there are signs that assorted locals are deciding whether or not to throw their hat in the ring. To help them make up their mind, council will be running a couple of information sessions to help locals figure out if they have what it takes to stand for election. Council's Acting Corporate Services Director Nick Redmond says the council is reactivating plans for seminars that were postponed last year. We started to do this process more than a year ago and then the, the New South Wales government actually canned the election so we've sort of had to put it off. So we're having a couple of workshops uh, on the Thursday of March the 11th from 6pm to 9pm and then a second one uh, later on from March 13th from 10am to 3pm, all at the Orange City Council Chamber. So it's an opportunity for anyone who might think they want to be a councillor, don't really know, understand, don't quite understand what the process is, you know, what the workload is, what a councillor's role is, so they can come along to those um, those sessions and, and find out those, those questions, answer those questions. You've, had, you've held these sessions in the past. What are some of the more curly questions that have come up? A really big one that comes up is around workload. Um, that and it can vary a lot. Uh, often councillors, predominantly, they've got a job already. Um, they'll have all sorts of interests. So you know, we'll go from uh, a council meeting that might last for an hour through to a council meeting that might last for four or five hours, four hours anyway. And um, so you know, the last, the first council meeting of this of this calendar year, we had a two thousand page paper. So that's a lot of reading. So it it varies, you know. Some councillors can, you know, they'll spend a lot of time reading and then come back to staff with questions. Others who have been around for a long time can find another pathway through the paper. So the the workload is as much as you want to put into it, which is not a great question, great answer for some people, but it, it is. It um, I'd, I'd, people need to have a, a good look at what available time they have before they put their hand up. So the Thursday. March 11 session is for the general public. The one on the Saturday on March 13 is targeted at women. Why is that? Uh, There's always been a view, and this comes from uh, the local government networks right across the state about, you know, being, having a representative council and um, 
so there's there's a there's a disproportionate number of men on local government, and that's right across the state. Orange is one example of that. So just to be just to have a council that's more reflective of the broader community would be a good thing, and having women as part of that would be great as well. So we have um, we've got one uh, uh, woman councillor at the moment. The most we've ever had, I think, is three, and that's got that goes back quite a number of years. So I think just in terms of um, getting some balance into that, you know, and that, I think that's true of um, uh, not only women, but also of, you know, it'd be great to have Indigenous councillors and maybe councillors from non-English speaking backgrounds. So I think something that's a bit more reflective of the broader community would be a good thing. And so the one on the Saturday on the 13th is hosted by ALGA, which is the Australian Local Government we- Local Government Women's Association. So there'll be, it'll be heavily focused on, you know, women in local government. Last year, you managed to get in one of those before the government decided to hold off the elections because of the coronavirus. Was that heavily attended? Yeah, so I went along for a couple of hours in the morning just to meet some people and get an understanding of what was happening on the day. And there was 40 or 50 women. It was a really good session. They were really well engaged. You know, it was really good to see people really interested in in putting their hand up for local government in Orange. I think it was great. Was that an unusual number? Have you seen that that sort of interest in previous years? That was pretty high. Um, the, For example, we did sessions the election before, and I can remember one where we hosted and we had one person turn up. Um, so there was there was myself, there was the mayor of the day, there was, you know, some um, admin and governance staff there. So there was one person from the public turned up. So I guess that indicates there's a level of interest, particularly from women, to attend these and, you know, put their hand up for council, which is good. So for the Australian Local Government Women's Association Forum that's going to be held on the Saturday, who have we got on the panel? So the session on the 13th, which is the ALGA one, the panel members include Orange City Councillor Joanne McRae, Lithgow City Councillor Cass Coleman, former Musselbrook Councillor Jennifer Leckie and former Mossman Mayor Denise Wilton. So a good panel. And who have we got on the panel for the Thursday session for the general public? So for the public forum on March 11, the... The facilitator is uh, a former Mayor of Leichhardt, Council Morishine. She will run the first half of the workshop covering topics such as, you know, the legislative responsibility of candidates and the election process and the rules around campaigning. The second half will be a forum with the panel consisting of our current CEO, Dave Waddell, and two councillors. So a good cross-section, you know, Dave will certainly be able to give the, the nuts and bolts of what, it, what, what we do as a business. And the councils will be able to, you know, talk about their role and how they set the strategic view, uh, vision for the community. So where should people go in the meantime if there are uh, after some general information about their deadlines for nominating and some of the legal requirements? Where would you recommend they go? There's a couple of spots. So you can go to the council website and that's at www.orange.newsouthwales.gov.au and we have a page there with lots of information and some timelines. The New South Wales Electoral Commission site's also good. That's will be running our election, so um, check there as well. So there's there's quite a lot of paperwork to do about registering to vote, and I think the first one, I think the first bit of paperwork is due sort of early July. So, but the timelines are on the website, and um, there's a whole process to go around whether you want to you know run on your own or be part of a ticket. So there's a few decisions to make. So. For example, if you want to be part of a ticket, which has generally been the the general way that um, 
this council has run. So we had eighty four. We had our eighty four candidates last time. There was something like thirteen tickets to help to have a ticket, which gets you a spot below the line. You have to have a group of six. So if you want to stand for council, and history shows us that the best way to get elected is in a group, you need to come up with five like-minded people who want to put their hand up as well so you get a spot below the line. So, for example, of the 11 councillors that were elected last time, 10 of those came from the group system below the line. Um, The mayor was elected by a popular vote, so that was separate. So of the 11 other councillors, only one stood on their own. All the rest came from a group. So that tells us something about how hard it is to get elected in Orange. So that makes a solid choice for people to make, I guess. Council's Acting Corporate Services Director, Nick Redmond there, speaking with Nicole Taylor. Remember to follow the Council's social media as well to stay in touch with the dates of those face-to-face candidate information sessions. Proposals by Orange City Council to build mountain bike trails on Mount Canobolis have reached an interesting milestone. Environmental scientists looking at whether a track can be built have reached the stage where it looks like there's space on the mountain. The next step is what kind of tracks can be built, some that don't badly impact sensitive places. The man who'll have a hand in designing those tracks, Jason Lamb, spoke at a gathering in the Civic Theatre this week about how he goes about the work he does. According to Jason Lamb, the way tracks are designed to prevent erosion is one of the aspects he gets asked about all the time. Erosion always comes up as this hot topic in terms of mountain bike trails causing major erosion and I think the perception of that comes largely from motorbike tracks or dirt bike tracks. Um, How we operate is very different so in terms of erosion, modern day trail building, it shouldn't be, it's no longer a concern. It's, It's addressed in so many um, ways in terms of trail alignment and trail construction methodologies, it's yeah, it's essentially irrelevant. It's been it's been designed and constructed out for sure. Wildlife, does uh, a mountain bike rider going past going to scare away the birds and the other wildlife? I don't think so. We've had this discussion a lot um, in terms of the environmental impact to native fauna and flora um, for birds and animals. Um, in terms of if you take, for instance, you're traversing through a trail. Um, on a bike, you're in and out of that point, call it point X, um, in a matter of milliseconds. Um, if you're walking through there, and especially if you're walking through as a group, in terms of the acoustic impact, I'd argue to say that's probably higher. You're walking at a much slower pace, so you're in that point for a much longer period of time. And if you're with other people, then you're obviously probably talking as well. So both um, both are going to have an impact because you are travelling through a pristine environment. But I can't say that mountain biking would be any any worse off than a, a bushwalker. You talked uh, during one of your presentations about uh, going to Whistler with your family and you do it every year. Um, can you talk about the economic impact on a place like Whistler which is well known as a ski run? Yeah so Whistler is uh, a mecca for skiing and snowboarding. It's a major ski destination and um, people travel there year-round to ski. So their ski season is actually the majority of the year given their climate, and mountain biking is only three months of the year. So I travel to Whistler every summer when I can for the last four years, but I've just had a newborn daughter, so this year's out and COVID's out, but I'll be there as soon as we can travel. But in terms of the economic impact, um, their figures in terms of um, the economy is that mountain biking brings in more money in those three months in summer than um, it does in winter, 
And the reason being, it's very simple, I guess. You look at how it operates. It operates with two to three major chairlifts to function over 100 kilometres of dedicated mountain bike trail. To run a ski operation, they run a multitude of, I don't know how many lifts. Um, it would probably be upwards of 10, 15, maybe 20. Um, and every night they've got the snowplow um, grooming the tracks and making sure that they're ready for the next day of skiing. Mountain biking, the trails are built and it's very little maintenance in terms of ongoing maintenance, especially if you keep on top of it. So in terms of the running costs, it's drastically lower. Um, but in terms of repeat visitation, you know, an uplift pass is 85 to $90 per day. Um, and those people are repeating those trails on and on. So there's a, a very good model there. Um, that's demonstrated not just in Whistler but pretty much every ski resort that you see. Um, even Threadbow is a good example locally, but Falls Creek, um, but definitely over in North America it's and even in Europe it's a, a proven sort of method. You mentioned the impact of COVID on mountain biking and the traditions and, and trends changing. How do you describe where it is now in Australia? Sure. Um, COVID's had obviously a huge impact in terms of overseas travel and um, it's really made most people, myself included, uh, look at what's in our own backyard. So a lot of people are travelling interstate um, pending border restrictions, but Tasmania has been a hot, uh, hot spot for mountain biking for the last five years. Um, they're well ahead of every single state currently. Victoria, Queensland is definitely um, starting to grow in terms of their mountain bike developments, but New South Wales has really been kind of left behind for a, a long period of time with the exception of Threadbow with a handful of trails there. Um, so I think New South Wales is definitely the sleeping giant. They've seen what all the other states have done. They've seen what works, what doesn't work. And they're really in the prime, kind of the box seat right now to to really um, tap into that, that domestic market. And then when travel opens up again, then to really tap into that international market, which is um, a genuine market for sure. You're only just beginning the concept design of tracks. Big picture question, though. Has Mount Canobulus got the potential to be world-class? No doubt. No doubt in my mind. From what I've seen so far, um, the first time we were here, we saw the potential. Um, the upper parts, the vegetation types, the views. Um, it reminds me a lot um, of some of the alpine vegetation I've been in and ridden in, um, whether it's in Mount Buller or Falls Creek. That top section definitely reminds me of that. It's absolutely stunning. And then into the lower parts... Um, yeah, there's huge potential there. There's enough elevation there to make a whole variety of trails work, not just for beginners, but right through the advanced riders to keep them engaged. Um, so, yeah, I think there's huge potential there. And having seen the constraints mapping and gone through the initial process of formulating a concept design, I'm confident that, yes, we can design something that's world-class here. From track designers Dirt Art, that was Jason Lamb. Thanks for joining us on the show this week. Before we finish up, I have a favour to ask you all. If you're enjoying listening to the Orange Podcast, could you go to the next step? Can you go to where you get your podcasts and leave a review with iTunes, Spotify or Pocket Cast? We're almost everywhere. If you leave a review, that will help someone else find this show. Until next time for the Orange Podcast, this is Ellie Bryce. Bye for now.